It's kind of an unusual series <clears throat> we're starting today, and uh, it's a bit of a play on words, content or contentment and discontentment, and they kind of overlap, and if you watch that video, you could see that things change very quickly from people being very contented to people being in dire straits where they're obviously very discontented. And uh, I have found that these two opposite states, the one we desire to feel contented, it's pleasant, it's the one we wish we could stay in, but there's a fine line between being discontent and contented, and it can switch very quickly. Uh, let, let me give you an example. How many of you ever had one of those days where, like, you get up in the morning and you don't know exactly what it is, whether you got an extra good night's sleep or you ate something good the night before, but for whatever reason, man, you get up and you just feel good. You know, your energy level is off track. You have had those days, haven't you? Can I see your hand? Uh, okay, all right. So, and so, you know, like, I have those days occasionally still, and, uh, you know, I had one of those days not too far back, actually, and, you know, got up, felt so good, man, and weather beautiful and everything, and it was one of those days that I felt so good, I dared to wear a white shirt. How many know what I'm talking about? <laughs> because we know that the particles, the fibers in white shirts, they are magnetized to dark liquids and ketchup and mustard and almost anything else, but I'm confident, man, it's a beautiful morning. I'm going down the road feeling really good, anticipating, anticipating that first cup of Brazilian bold 7-Eleven coffee. <laughs> if you're still paying four bucks for coffee, you're being cheated. Go to 7-Eleven, Ankleburger Road, get Brazilian bold. So I'm anticipating, I'm driving down the road, man, and, and in my head, in my head, there's this song going through my head. It's, it's, and my voice sounds just like this in my head. Just like this. Just like this. Just like this. <laughs> or maybe not like this. That was supposed to be a cue. Okay, we're not going to do that. But we are going to do that. <laughs> we planned it's that. It's a beautiful morning. <laughs> That's exactly how I sound when I sing. I think I'll so I get to the 7-Eleven. I got my white shirt on. And I get to the spigot, you know, and uh, I turn that spigot, and I can see the steam flying off of that delicious Brazilian bowl coffee. Comes, and then it happens. The splash. How many know what I'm talking about? The splash. I don't know why. You might get 50 cups of coffee. You only get the splash once out of 50, but it happens. And when the splash, when it hits in there, it comes up. And, of course, what do we say about white shirts? Magnetic fibers draws all liquids that are dark. And on the shirt... It goes, and all of a sudden, my contented state, my beautiful morning, turns to a mood something like this. <laughs> and I'm not content anymore at all. I'm very discontent. And if you're like me, that's life. I mean, I can fluctuate back and forth, back and forth in any given day between being very contented, very at peace, and then very irritated and discontented. Uh, it can be almost anything. It doesn't have to be a coffee experience. It happens to be one of mine. But it could be that you're just driving down the road having one of those good mornings, and then somebody goes by, and they're talking to you in sign language. How many know that? <laughs> yeah, that'll change your mood real quick. <laughs> so what is this about? I mean, why is it that we can fluctuate so quickly between being discontent and content. 
I mean, aren't we, aren't we grown-ups? Don't we know that the world's not perfect? I mean, things are going to happen. You can't control everything. Don't we have realistic expectations? Shouldn't those realistic expectations protect us from getting so discontent so quickly? But the truth of the matter is, I think just about all of us do have realistic expectations, mature expectations. We know it's not perfect, and yet still, there are some things, they just like bulldozers plow right through, get right to our mood, they alter our mood, and we go from contented to very discontented. And if you're like me, don't have a lot of control over it. It can be any number of things. It can have to do with circumstances that are completely out of our control and let's be realistic uh, it can have to do with people so the thing that that I first want to start thinking about though is, is where do I get this image in my head that evidently I'm comparing everything to in other words when I get discontent it means that somewhere inside me I had this image of the way things were supposed to be where, where does that image come from? I mean, what, what is it? It, it? it seems like hidden inside me, there's this image of this perfect state of being where everything goes right all the time. But, but is that realistic when you live in a world full of people like me and people like you? I'm going to read something to you from the New Testament. This was written over or just under 2,000 years ago, and it could be like a headline today. Listen to this depiction of society then, and the first verse that I didn't include on this, it talks about the way society will evolve to the last part of human history. Here's the scripture. The Apostle Paul was the writer. This was the last book that he wrote. Uh, He was responsible. The Spirit of God used him for 13 books in the New Testament, and he writes these words, for people will be lovers of themselves. Well, that's kind of current. Lovers of money. That's kind of current. Boastful, yeah. Arrogant. Blasphemers, you know, using God's name as a cuss word. Yeah, that happens a lot. Disobedience to parents. Ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable. Slanders without self-control. The, the explosion of addiction today. Savage. We, we see this more and more in our face. Savage behavior. Opposed to what is good. treacherous, reckless, conceited, loving, what does it say? Pleasure rather than loving God. The book of Romans, written by the same apostle, it adds to this, it says, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Everywhere you go, you hear profanity and cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. You can't get away from violence today. Ruin and misery are in their paths, and the way of peace they have not known. So, So maybe where... Our discontent comes from, it's this this world that is full of people that behave this way. Maybe that's the major source of our discontent. But the truth of the matter is, I'm on that list. I don't know about you. I'm up there. I've, I've had some of those behaviors. I may still exhibit some of those behaviors on a given day. But nevertheless, maybe that's what creates so much discontent. Now, I haven't even talked about other things that create discontent. What about accidents? You know, a life can be going just according to plan, and then an accident changes everything forever. It could be just a drunk driver. It could be anything. What about weather catastrophes? We just had that occur, you know, in Houston and down in Florida. I mean, that changes everything. What about earthquakes? What about volcano, volcanic eruptions? There's all kinds of things. 
What, 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 about, what about crime? A person's life can be suddenly gone from contentment to discontentment, turned upside down by one lousy criminal act. Change forever. What about war? Doesn't matter how much you plan, it doesn't matter how secure we try to make our lives, and predictable war can change everything instantly. And this is the real world we live in. Maybe I shouldn't care. I don't know. Maybe we should just say, hey, this is the way it is, and this is the way it's always been. And, and so why get all bugged out about this, you know? Uh, just, just learn to accept it. It's the way life is. It's the way life is always going to be. People are always going to be like this. There's always going to be crime and disease and death and war and violence. And so, so, so just get used to it and learn how to filter it out and be content. Is, is that maybe a better approach, you know? Just kind of lower our expectations. Or would that maybe be unhealthy? In other words... Is it possible that having a, a sense of discontentment with our present world is actually, is actually an expression of health in our soul? What, what if the fact that we're too content, we're too attached, we're, we're too at ease with things in our world as it is today, what, what if it's a sign that something has gone really bad wrong with our soul? Uh, what if discontentment with our world as it is today is something that's healthy. There's a guy that's pretty accomplished in Hollywood realm, uh, Josh Whedon, creative intelligence screenwriter, producer who's become famous for films like Toy Story, The Avengers. And he was interviewed by Entertainment Weekly. Whedon was asked the question if he had hope that the human race is becoming smarter and better. Pause for a minute. What do you think? Do you think he said he thinks we're getting smarter and better? Well, let's listen. Whedon said, I think we're actually becoming stupider and more petty. What's going on in this country and many countries is beyond depressing. It's terrifying. Sometimes I have to remember who I'm talking to. I'll say something about how terrible things are and meaningless and the world is headed toward destruction and war and apocalypse and at one point, my daughter goes, hey, I'm eight. <laughs> she doesn't want to hear that stuff. But I can't believe anybody thinks that we're actually going to make it before we destroy the planet. I honestly think it's inevitable. I have no hope. I want to be wrong more than anything. I hate to say it. It's that line from the Lord of the Rings. I give hope to men. I keep none for myself. Now, is Whedon, who is extraordinarily successful, I mean, let's face it, if anybody's got a, a life that's probably full of contentment, full of the higher pleasures that life affords, is he an unusual pessimist, or, or is, he, is he sensitized to reality? I, I mean, what is he comparing everything to? You see, in his heart and mind, if you listen to him, he's saying things are not the way they should be. There's something terribly wrong, and it's getting worse. Well, what is he comparing it to? It seems like embedded in him, just like it's embedded, I think, in each and every human, is this image, this image of how it ought to be. I'm just curious. I just want to ask this. How many of you ever had the experience? I don't know. It might be something that happened at work. It might be something that comes across the news. You might be in a conversation with somebody. You might hear about some event that happened in this country or another part of the world, but it, it plows its way through, 
you're no longer content, you're very discontent, and you find yourself just shaking your head and saying, I just cannot believe, I cannot believe that these kinds of things happen. And you just kind of shake your head. How many have ever had that experience? I'm sincere. Yeah, that's discontent. I don't think you're being pessimistic. I don't think you're being spoiled. I think we're all haunted by a vision of the way life should be. What if, what if this vision is kind of like what we were singing in that song that we're, we're kind of living on the edge of heaven? What if this vision is literally the edge of heaven that's still faintly, still faintly alive in the deepest recesses of our soul? Not in our head. No, no, no. It's deeper. It's in our heart. It's a place where imagination and desire fuse together and we imagine how things could be and we desire how they should be. And we unconsciously compare what things are to it. And inevitably it brings discontent. And then sometimes we say, why torment myself? Why hope for something that can never be? I'm just going to drown it out. I'm just going to kind of block it out. I'm just going to kind of go with the flow. Because this is as good as it gets. There's a verse in the New Testament. And it says something kind of unusual. Just curious, have we all had the experience of watching a football game, which I intend to do today, going to record the Redskins game, so don't tell me the, the score or anything. Uh, but you ever had the experience, you know, you're looking at the game, and inevitably there's some guy with a multicolored hair, and he's holding the sign. And what does the sign say? John 3.16. As though everyone watching knows what John 3.16 is. <laughs> but a lot of people do. John 3.16. For God so loved the world, that's good news, that he gave his only begotten son, that's Jesus, that whosoever believes in him or trusts in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. God so loves the world of people. But now listen to this verse. This is also from the same John. Listen to this one. Don't love the world. But wait, wait, wait a minute. I thought, I thought God so loved the world. Don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. Everything that is in the world, the craving for whatever the body feels, in other words, whatever makes you feel good, whatever brings you pleasure, that's, that's one of the pursuits of the world, according to John. The craving for whatever the eyes see, man, I want to just be surrounded with things that I like looking at, you know. And the arrogant pride in one's possessions, and I might add one's achievements in other translations. It's not of the Father, but it's of the world. Well, what is this world? Is this a contradiction in Scripture? Well, on the one hand, it says God loves the world, and here it says don't love the world. Well, the world that God loves is the world of people, broken, imperfect people, just like me and just like you. You cannot do anything to stop God from loving you. Yes, you and I can reject his love, but he's still going to love you. That's that good news. But this is talking about something different. It's talking about a system, a system that draws people away. It offers people contentment. It offers people meaning. It offers people purpose, but, but it's, it's not able to come up with what it promises. When I was a kid living with my grandmother in a neighborhood. We had this dog called Charlie. Charlie was just some kind of a mangy dog. You know, all the kids knew him. Everything was fine, and everybody liked Charlie. But Charlie had a habit. Every time a car would go by in that neighborhood, Charlie would chase the car ferociously. How many ever seen dogs do that? Okay. And you could tell after he got finished chasing it down and it drove off, he kind of struck back like, you know, he was quite content. As I got older, I thought to myself, Charlie, my man, what are you going to do if you catch the car? <laughs> and I think if Charlie could talk, he would have said, Randy, my man. <laughs> it's not in the catch. It's in the chase. 
<laughs> when it says love not the world or the things that are in the world, and then it gives those, that set of experiences, it's saying, please, you're made in the image of God. You are made for so much more. You're so much higher and better than this. Don't be seduced by this stuff that will never, ever satisfy your soul, even if you get it. Like Charlie, get in the car. You'll find it's not enough. It doesn't bring lasting contentment. Came across a story that illustrates this quite well by, about a guy named Marcus Pearson. Marcus Pearson uh, owned a company that made the game Minecraft. Maybe some of you have played that game, you know, and it was bought in 2014 by Microsoft. He became an instant billionaire overnight, $1.4 billion. So here's, if I can go to the next slide. August 29th, 2015, person posted a series of tweets. Now, mind you, this is about a year after he became a billionaire that captured his gnawing sense of unhappiness and dissatisfaction. If anybody played the world game, had the world by the string, it was this guy, 4.48 a.m. The problem with getting everything is you run out of reasons to keep trying. The dog catches the car, and what do you do with it? And human interaction becomes impossible due to imbalance. He goes on, 4.50 a.m., hanging out at Ibiza, Ibiza, I'm probably mispronouncing, mispronouncing that, with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want. And I've never felt more, what is the word? Isolated. Now he's a billionaire, 452. When we sold the company, the biggest effort went into making sure the employees got taken care of and they all hate me now. 453, found a great girl, but she's afraid of me and my lifestyle. And went with a normal person instead. Love not the world, neither things of the world. Is God trying to warn us about something that can keep us running, keep us chasing, seduce us? Because it says love not. It means that we can start to love the glitter and the glam and the celebrity status. And never really can it bring lasting contentment. This guy named Christopher Hitchens, he's a journalist, he's dead now, uh, was an outspoken antagonist for the cause of Christ. Hated Christians, hated Christianity, wrote a book called God is Not Great in 2007. In an unusual interview, he was asked, you know, did, did Christianity uh, contribute anything to his life? And here's what he goes on to say. The greatest contribution of Christianity in my life is the reminder of the complete ephemerality, the state of being temporary, short-lived, of human power and indeed of human existence. The transience of all states, empires, heroes, grandiose claims, and so forth. That's always with me. Here's this atheist and he's admitting, this world, if you get it all, it's still not enough. It's ephemeral. It's transient. It's fading. It doesn't last. Even if you become a billionaire, even if you become a multi-billionaire, you don't live long enough to enjoy it. And should you enjoy it, should you really fully be content in a world where so many don't have even next meal? I mean, we all know it. Clock ticks. Somebody just starved to death. Clock ticks, somebody just died from a crime. Clock ticks, somebody just died from a disease. Clock ticks, somebody just died from a horrific accident that they didn't deserve. And on it could go. Clock ticks, people slaughtered in a war scene. And on and on it goes. Should, should we be content? Is it healthy to be content in a world that is full of this 
kind of life I might not be experiencing. I might be experiencing the good things most of us in the Western world are, but should we be content with it? It's ephemeral, it's not lasting, it's transient, and it can never satisfy. Now, Jesus said some words, and Jesus is an interesting person because you know, there's never been anyone like Jesus in all of human history. I keep referring to this, this image that we seem to have embedded inside of us. We compare everything to. It's where our discontent comes from. We kind of sense that things should be better. Things ought to be really significantly better, but we don't have any models in human history. There's never been an era in human history where there was no disease, there was no death, there was no crime, there was no war, there was no hatred, there was no prejudice. I could go on and on and on. There's never been, an, there's no governments that have ever produced that kind of society for anyone, anywhere, nor will they. So there's not much to hope for. Where does this haunting image that's in our minds of a perfect life, where does it come from? Or maybe it's because we are living on the edge of heaven and and we're made in the image of God, and he's put that image of life inside of us. And, and let me go further. There was one brief moment in human history, a three-and-a-half-year period, just three-and-a-half short years, where this person, Jesus, came to the planet. And he was more than a person, obviously, by all that he said and all that he did. Clearly, he proved himself to be more than just a man. But for three-and-a-half years... It looked like the kind of life we really ache for was possible. For example, anybody that had a disease, didn't matter what it was, any kind of disease, Jesus healed it instantly. People could have uh, birth defects, crippled limbs. He would straighten them immediately. People that were complete outcasts and hated and rejected by society, Jesus embraced them and took them in and gave them respect and love and dignity and hope. It, the weather, Jesus was once asleep on a boat and a storm came along and his disciples panicked. These were experienced fishermen, they panicked and he just wakes up and speaks to the storm and stops it. He shows that, that the most catastrophic weather circumstances he had power over as well. Jesus demonstrated during his life that he could even bring people back to life after they were dead. He did it three times while he was on earth for those three and a half years of ministry. He lived about 33 years altogether and then, of course, he pulled off the greatest event in history. He predicted his own death, his own crucifixion, his own rejection, and predicted his own resurrection from the dead, proved it, showed himself alive for 40 days to multitudes of people, overwhelming, compelling evidence that this image that we have in us, it can happen. So compelling is this person called Jesus that most of the world today splits our calendar by his coming before Christ, A.D., in the year of our Lord. So we got a glimpse. We got a glimpse. What is this image? If you go past your head into your heart, fuse it with your imagination, you will find in yourself, every human has this because we're image bearers, made in God's image, you long, I long, and what I'm so discontented about is because I can't have and you can't have, you long for a world where every day is a good day and the one after it is better than the one before it. You long for a world where everyone is loved, everyone's respected, everyone has abundance, everyone is safe, everyone's secure, where any little child can go down any street in America at any time and be utterly safe, a world where there's no locks, no police, no armies, no crime, no disease, no death. 
A world where people actually live eternally, loving one another, righteous people, kind people, good people, consistently so. Never is there anything to fear. Certainty from day to day, week to week, month to month, through eternity. That's the world you really want. And you and I unconsciously compare everything that happens in this life to it. And that's why we can find ourselves getting so discontent. And it's good. It's a good discontent. In fact, let me just be honest. Let me get right to the point. The most dangerous thing that can happen to you or I is that we get content and complacent and we accept this present world, this present age the way it is because it is unacceptable. Don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying let's go lead a crusade to change the world. You or I or no government, no group of people are going to change this world. The scripture is very clear. It's going to take one person, the creator of the universe, to change this world ultimately. He promised to do so after he rose from the dead. And that's where I pinned my hopes. That's where I've pinned my hopes for 44 years now. And, and that's one of the ways that God helps us to cope with this. Now, now, he's a king. Jesus was a king, but he was a king unlike any other king that we've ever seen before. Listen to these words. This was the last night that Jesus was with his disciples. He had already told them he was going to be crucified. He knew it. He was prepared for it. He did so willingly. He could have instantly stopped anyone from hurting him but he chose not to use his power but listen to these words when he's with his followers the last evening he was with them he's praying and he says i have given to i've given to them your word the message you gave me he's communicating with the father in heaven and the world has what is the word hated them the world has hated them he, jesus followers why why did the world hate your followers jesus because they are not of the what not of the world, and do not belong to the world, just as I am not of the world and do not belong to it. Jesus replied, my kingdom is not of this, what does it say? This world. What, how can that be? What, what, how can you be in the world? Jesus said his followers are in the world, but they're not of the world. Jesus was in the world, but he said I, he was not of the world. What does this mean? It means that though he was in this physical world and his followers were in this physical world, he did not and they did not live by the common precepts and drives and values and priorities of this present system. Jesus flatly rejected the world as it is and it was one of the reasons he was dragged to the cross. But even when that was all part of the plan of God, he wanted to show that the almighty, the all-powerful God is one that is so sacrificially loving and good that he would rather go to a cross and be crucified unjustly than to have his humans that he created in love confused about whether we need to fear him or whether we could trust him or not. There's a Christian writer named Henry Nouwen. Many years ago, he wrote this story about a situation that occurred in Paraguay. There was a lot of government upheaval there. And the military and the government, they were arresting people. You know, just anybody that opposed the government, they were arresting and many times torturing. And there was a doctor in Paraguay at this time, a friend of Henry Nouwen's. And he was very outspoken against the government. Well, the government decided to get back at him by arresting his teenage son. They arrested his teenage son and they started to torture him. They burned him with cigarettes. They burned him with electric shock. They stripped off all his clothes. They beat him horribly. And ultimately, they killed him. And so this doctor thought to himself, you know, what, what do I do with this situation? The people were, you know, very turbulent, uh, wanting to do all kinds of things. And the doctor decided, no, 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 what, what I'll do is this. They took the bloody mattress. They were able to get it, the bloody mattress that his son was killed, tortured and killed on. 
And the doctor dragged his own son, naked body, scarred up body, burnt up body, laying on the bloody mattress, and let everybody around the community just see it. Just see it. And now and then, Henry Nouwen, the Christian writer, follows with these words. Isn't that what God did at Calvary? Meaning the place where Jesus, the creator of the universe, was crucified. The cross that held Jesus' body naked and marked with scars exposed all the violence and injustice of this world. The world never looked so evil than when it crucified its creator and the creator did not fight back. At once, the cross revealed what kind of world we have, the world that we must not be content with, the world that would crucify the best human life that's ever been. At once, the cross revealed what kind of world we have and what kind of God we have, a God who would sacrifice even for those that drove the nails in his hands. A world of gross unfairness and a God of sacrificial love. And so, this is where these two kind of rub together. A world that we, we dare not ever get too contented with, and yet it's a world we have to be in and cope with. And so, what if, what if God's intention, the Creator's intention, that his intention was for the world the way it is now, life the way it is now, it was meant to keep you and I a bit restless. In other words, it was meant to keep us discontented. It was meant to keep us so restless and so discontented now that we would be drawn toward finding true contentment, everlasting contentment forever. And, and I share this little statement with you. Let discontentment now lead you to contentment forever. Because, see, Jesus made promises. He promised that after he died, he would rise again, and he did. And he promised that all that put their trust in him and become his followers, that they would inherit his kingdom, which is a kingdom not of this world. It's a kingdom where there's no more sickness, sorrow, pain, or death, no more injustice, no more prejudice, no more hate, no more crime. It is a kingdom of everlasting contentment for everyone forever. And I need to be restless enough and discontent enough, truth be told, that I'll care enough to find what my true destiny, your true destiny, has always been. It's an interesting verse in a New Testament book called Colossians 1.16. It says, we were made by Christ and for Christ. And apart from him, our lives never cohere. But sometimes it takes real restlessness, real upheaval in our lives to, to get ourselves stirred up enough to realize this world is not, cannot ever really be my home. So how do I handle this discontent? Okay, so I'm still in the world. How, how do I handle it? When the book of Romans in the New Testament, the apostle Paul writing to Christians living in the city of Rome, he said this. This is writing to people who had put their faith in Christ and become his followers. Those that were in the world, but they were not going to live of the world. He says, do not be conformed. Do not be molded. Do not be shaped to this present world, its values, its pursuits, its priorities, its fads, its trends. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the, what? Renewing of your mind. Well, how, how do we get our mind renewed? Well, we go to God's word. We learn the truth about God and the truth about life is who it's meant to be. We let that fill our minds and then we start acting on it and living it out and that transforms us changes the neural pathways in our brains. We actually become new creatures, 
new people when our trust in Christ is followed up by action based on God's word. So that's one way we can handle the discontent. We are discontented now because things are not as the way they were meant to be, but we're changing and we're living out that kingdom that we're meant for. We're starting to live it out now. We're starting to display it to everybody that's around us. That helps us to cope with the discontent. There's another scripture in the book of Philippians, the same apostle Paul. He wrote 13 books in the New Testament. He said to followers of Christ living in Philippi, he said, our citizenship is where? In heaven. Ordinary, imperfect followers of Christ. He says, your citizenship was not in Rome, which is where they were, not in Philippi, not in America. Our citizenship as followers of Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, it is in heaven. And we also await a savior from there. He promised he would return the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he returns, who will transform these humble bodies of ours into the likeness of his glorious body by means of that power by which he is able to subject all things to himself. When Jesus rose from the grave, he still had a physical body, but he could dematerialize. He could ascend into heaven. We're promised a body like that that will no longer be vulnerable to disease or sickness or death or any such thing. When Jesus returns, that's his promise. Now, I want to say something I said in the first service that's very important for us today. Our citizenship, according to that, if we're followers of Christ here today, it is in heaven, and we are living in a time of political turbulence, particularly in America, but also in a lot of other nations of the world. Listen to me, Christian. Listen to me, follower of Christ. Listen very careful. Do not be seduced. Do not be dragged into this political melee. You are above that, or we are supposed to be. Your citizenship, first and foremost, your loyalty, your allegiance as a follower of Christ is to the kingdom of heaven. Yes, I'm going to be as good a citizen as I can be, whether I'm in ancient Rome in the New Testament times or in America today. But do not be sucked into this political turmoil. It is below you, Christian. You are made for something higher and better. Do not be pulled into it. It's a trap for followers of Christ today. It's a terrible divisive trap. So I just say that in passing. Let me share one third scripture with you and we'll get ready to close out. In the book of Hebrews chapter 11, it really talks about what our circumstance is now. Yes, we're discontented with things now, but we're waiting for Jesus to fulfill his promises. And it talks about others who have had to live through such things. These people all died still believing and that we're believing, still trusting God. They did not get the things God had promised them, but they saw them far away and were glad to see them. They said they did not belong to this world. Here it is again. They didn't belong to this world. They were in the world, but they didn't belong to it. But we're only traveling in it. They want a place in heaven, a real place, a real dimension, a real realm where God's will is done by all, all the time. That is why God wants to be called their God. Notice that God wants to be called the God of people who say, this world's not my home. That is why God wants to be called their God. He has made a city ready for them. You can read about that city, by the way, in the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and 22. It's a real city, real place being made for you if you're a Christ follower. So how can I handle this discontent? I keep my attention fixed on the perfect kingdom that my heart desires, and I refuse to be contented with this present world as it is. I live with this discordance, but the sureness of Jesus' promise allows me not to become discouraged or depressed in the meantime. And I don't become some old grouch that criticizes everything and everyone. I do my best to, to live a life that will draw others to the truth about God and life in Christ. 
Let me close with one, uh, one interesting conversation that took place between a Christian writer named Robert Weber. He was on an airplane. He was uh, flying from San Francisco to L.A., and uh, he was sitting beside a man that was obviously Eastern in orientation, maybe Middle Eastern. He could tell, you know, by, by his complexion and so forth. And uh, Weber was reading a Christian book, and the man started a conversation with him. He said, oh, uh, I see you're religious. And Weber said, well, I suppose you could say that. And the man said, well, you know, I too am religious. And so they started a conversation about their religion. This guy was more into Eastern uh, philosophies and so forth. Well, at one point, Robert Weber, the Christ follower, the Christian, he said, look, he said, if you could give me a one-liner that summarizes all your beliefs, your faith position, what your faith teaches, could you, could you do that? Could you give me a one-liner? And the man said, well, certainly I can. Christian, by the way, follower of Christ, that's a good thing to be able to do for yourself. If somebody says, could you give me a one-liner? Anyway, this man of Eastern philosophy orientation, he said, here's, here's the one-liner. We're all part of the problem, and we're all part of the solution. Now, pause for a minute. Don't go to the next slide. <laughs> we're all part of the problem, and we're all part of the solution. That's pretty sharp. And Robert Weber said to the guy, he said, that's impressive. That's interesting. He said to the man, would you like me to give you a one-liner that summarizes my faith? And Weber said this, we're all part of the problem, notice the agreement, but there is only one man who is the solution. His name is Jesus. The discontent that we must feel if our souls are alive, it's meant to create a restlessness that will cause us to passionately love God, long for his kingdom, long to help as many others come to know the love and truth of his kingdom as long as we're alive and breathing. But our dependence on changing this world, it is on one person. It is the person that created this world. And his name is Jesus. So let me, let me give you three things to think about as we close. First of all, is it possible that, that, that the main thing that God wants you or I to consider doing today is, is that I've become, maybe you've become, you sense, too comfortable. In, in other words, maybe God's saying, I want you to be more discontented with this world. I want you to look at it occasionally and see what's really going on. And I don't want you to get complacent and content with it. You're not going to be able to change it immediately, but, but don't get content with it. Maybe... Maybe that's what God's saying to some of us today. I need to be more restless about things. Number two, maybe God is saying to some of us today, you know, I've become too molded by this world. I'm going right along with the flow with everybody else. I'm not living kingdom values. I'm not living for Christ. I'm not living out the word of God. I'm not seeking to, to build bridges with those that are apart from Christ and so forth as a, as a normal of my, part of my life. I'm not serving others. I'm not seeking so, so I, I, my values have deteriorated I need to change I need to recalibrate my life to kingdom values because I frankly have just become like everyone else if that's your number own it because this is God's opportunity for us to change to make some change third category there's some of you this morning and you've truth be told You've never said, Jesus, I want your kingdom to be my kingdom. I don't want to be of this world anymore. I'm not satisfied with it. I'm not content with it. It'll never bring contentment. I get it. You are the only hope that I have. And from this day forward, Jesus, I'm going to put my trust in you. And starting today, I'm going to become your follower. 
I'm going to learn your will and I'm going to live by your will and I'm going to wait for your kingdom to come and your will to be done just like you promised. But it starts from me today. I am going to become your follower today. That's the most important decision that a human being ever makes. I made it 44 years ago. I've regretted a lot of things in my life. I've never regretted that decision. Frankly, 44 years later, it seems better and better all the time. Don't let that slip by. If something's stirred your heart today, put your decision down. Put your faith in Christ. Become his follower. So let's pray and ask God to help us. Whichever the three he may want us to take some action upon today, let's do that. Father, we recognize, first of all, that just like that song says, and, and the song we'll sing again, we are living on the edge of heaven. Your presence, it brings that, that image inside of us of a world, of a life that we long for, we ache for, but we give up on because we don't think it's possible. Stir that hope in us again to know that you'll make it possible. And we pray that you'll give us courage and strength to make whatever those three decisions would be wise for us to make today. We ask all this in Christ's name.